Good evening again. When I was asked um, several weeks ago about sharing tonight, I agreed, not knowing what I would speak on. And I asked, I said, Lord, you know, I know Pastor Lee. What would you have me say? What would you have me share? And the Lord reminded me of a passage of scripture that has always been a, an encouragement and a blessing to me, especially when I first became a Christian. I was 25. And I always um, try to use it to uh, quote it, I should say, to encourage others as I have the opportunity. And so I felt this passage of scripture came to mind um, as a topic for this evening. And it's Romans chapter 8, the entire chapter of Romans 8. When we was in Rumkey, I had memorized the whole chapter because it was such a, an encouragement to me. And so tonight, I know this would be a one sitting message in the sense that I would start at chapter one and go to the end of the chapter, so it definitely doesn't do it justice. But I want you to listen to the verses as we go through it. And I hope that it would be an encouragement for you as it has been to me. Romans chapter 8. Let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, thank you again for allowing me an opportunity to share from a chapter that you have used to encourage me from the very first verse. I thank you for the thoughts that I've compiled and what I have prepared. I pray, my Father, that it would be an encouragement, it would be a blessing, and that you would use it however you choose for your honor and for your glory. We give you thanks as you speak through me this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ Jesus. Now, the word therefore, as you know, indicates that something has been said previously. Paul is about to give us in this chapter the result or the conclusion of what he was teaching on in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the Apostle Paul not only gave a detailed and personal description about his struggle with the flesh, but also about man's inability to be justified by the works of the law. I would like to share three points before going into chapter 8. He says in verse 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 7, 
For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 19. For I don't do the good I want to do, but instead do the evil that I don't want to do. The first thing we notice in these two verses is that Paul has painfully but truthfully concluded that the flesh, as he referred to it, is rotten to the core. He makes an honest confession of his inability to do what he knows the right thing to do, but does the opposite, even though he has the desire to do right. The second thing we see is found in verse 7, and I call this the purpose of the law according to this text. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sinful? Of course not. In fact, he says, I wouldn't have known sin if it had not been for the law, for I wouldn't have known what it means to covet if the law had not said you must not covet. In other words, Paul says, is saying, when the law came, sin was identified. When the law came, sin was identified. So the law, in a sense, was acting like a mirror. It showed a true reflection, but it was unable to change the image. Let me repeat that. In a sense, the law was acting like a mirror. It can show what sin was, but it could not do nothing about it. Okay? Thirdly, we see the inability of the law to bring about our sanctification. That is found again in Romans 7, but this time it's further up. It's verse 5 and verse 6. And then we'll see basically the same thing said in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. But verse 5 and 6 of Romans 7 says, For while we were living in the flesh, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law by dying to what enslaved us so that we may serve in the new life of the spirit, not under the old written code. And Romans 8 verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul, having realized the weakness of the flesh, comes to the same conclusion about the law, that though it is, as, though it is good, it could only identify sin, but not atone for it. So he laments in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers in verse 25. He says boldly, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This realization is what made it possible for Paul to so boldly and confidently proclaim with all assurance in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, the verse that we read first that we will look at again in, in, in a minute. And he was able to say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it is Jesus who will rescue us from that body of death. And then he goes right into verse 1. He says, 
Well, he says that for the believer, there is no condemnation, not now, nor will there be in the future for those who are in union with Christ Jesus our Lord. That is also why he was able to say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and that says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. So in verse 24 of Romans 7, Paul says, Jesus will rescue us from this body of death. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, one translation says, the new has come. Old things have passed away, says another translation, all things have become new. But it's in, it's in Christ. So he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? But he says, thank God, the rescue comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in Romans 8, verse 1, he can say, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when I, when I first read that, when I first understood that, I was doing classes at the counseling center. My spiritual father, one of them, sitting to the back. That was such a tremendous encouragement to me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have passed away. All things have become new. So you mean my past could not be used against me? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Nothing at all, you mean? All that I used to do and all that I used to be will never be counted against me? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, that's the difference. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen. When that sunk in, totally different person. Because a lot of times, you are hindered by the fact that you can't be, you? I give you three months. You be a Christian, I give you three months. Fortunately for me, they still waiting. But that's what Christ does. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. The time, the law of the spirit of life in Christ seems to indicate a life that comes by the spirit through faith in Christ. Verse 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Here we see the influence and the corrupting ability of the flesh. In verse 3, it rendered the law powerless. Sin rendered the law powerless. The second thing we see in verse 3, redemption from sin required divine intervention. God had to send his only son as the sinless and spotless Lamb of God because he was the only one qualified to atone for our sin. 
And it goes on to tell us why sin was condemned in the flesh, verse 4, so that the, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of the law, my friends, was required justice, meaning the penalty of sin had to be paid. It had to be atoned for. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus came. He was our sacrificial lamb. Atonement had to be paid. And he was the only one qualified to do so. The us in this verse 4 is referring to those who are in union with Christ. That was mentioned in verse 1. Notice also how the us referred to here is supposed to live. We are not to live according to the flesh, nor to be dominated by the flesh, but to live according to the spirit. Let's look at verse 5, uh, five 6, and 7. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. See, see when you talk about living according to the flesh, that's a certain mindset. That's a mindset that, that, that dominates you to the point where everything you do is based on that mindset. Finish it. As a man thinketh. Right. See, the Bible sometimes uses the, the mind and heart interchangeably. Okay? So as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So your behavior is reflected on what, how you believe or what you believe. So if your theology is wrong, your practice as a Christian would be wrong. The us in this verse is referring to those who are in union with Christ Jesus. That was mentioned in verse 1. They are not to live according to the flesh or be dominated by the flesh, but live according to the spirit. So to set our minds on the, on the spirit, uh, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set our minds on the flesh leads to death. That's what that mindset would lead you to. That is where it takes you. A, a mindset that is controlled by the flesh is going down a one-way street. Takes you to a dead end, I should say. It takes you to a dead end. Fortunately, the God we serve allows U-turns when you realize that you're on the wrong track. See, that's where I was at age 25. I was going nowhere fast until I realized I was, I was going down a dead end. There's no good ending when you're on a dead end street. But the God we serve allows U-turns. And so I, I, I found my right exit and I got back on the highway. But it was the right highway. And so... God doesn't want us to live according to the flesh because that leads to death. But you know, the, minds, the mind that is controlled by the spirit leads to life and peace. And that's what he wants for us. Romans 7 says, that is why the mind that is set on the flesh, it is hostile to God. It is hostile toward God. Why? Because it refuses to submit to God. It refuses. It's a refusal to submit to the authority of God's law. Why? Because it is powerless to do so. A mind that is hostile to God refuses to submit to God in this passage because it is impossible to do so. It is unable to do so. The word live means, as I said, a way of life. A mindset or a lifestyle that feels completely normal being dominated by the flesh. 
That's the reason why when a person is completely dominated by the flesh and under the control of the flesh, nothing spiritual interests him. A mindset that is controlled completely by the Spirit, a young person or a Christian in general who is submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit, the things of the flesh, even though it may be a temptation, because of the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't yield. And so Paul makes it clear in this passage the two different mindsets, the two different uh, spirits, if you want, and how we are to operate based on biblical principles as Christians submitting to God and his authority as opposed to those being dominated by the flesh and refusing to submit to his authority. Verse, uh, verse 8 said, In these, those who are under the control of the flesh cannot please God. But in the very next verse, Paul, Paul, Paul says to us in verse 9, Paul makes a clear distinction between the two mindsets by saying, You, referring to us, the, referring to the us in verse 4. He says, You, however. In other words, he, say, he, was, uh, referring, he was saying to those who are dom- dominated by the flesh, that we talked about a little while ago, he said, They can't submit to God. They refuse to do so. They are unable to do so. But he says, You, and like I said, this you, he's referring to the us in verse 4. He says, you, however, are not of the flesh, but under the control of the Spirit, since God's Spirit lives in you. Now, this tells us that as a Christian, this is what God expects of us. That if the Holy Spirit is resident within us as born-again believers, he expects us to be submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and this is the lifestyle that he desires for us. And if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make your mortal bodies alive by the spirit who lives in you. Consequently, my brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you continually put to death the activities of the body, you will live. For all who are led by God's Spirit are God's children. Paul leaves no doubt in anyone's mind about the two natures and how they operate. He entertains no political correctness to avoid offending anyone, but gives a clear and precise explanation about both natures and what is expected of us who believe. He now goes on to explain about our adoption in verse 15 to 17. Verse 15 says, but you have received a, but you have not received a spirit of slavery that leads you again to fear. Instead, you have received a spirit of adoption. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In verse 15, the you referred to is the same people he was referring to as us in verse 4. Paul confirms that because of our adoption into the family of God, 
We did not receive a spirit that leads us to fear or one that makes us afraid of God, which is a spirit of bondage. But instead, our adoption gives us the right or puts us in a privileged position to proclaim God as our Abba, our Daddy. Now that's, that's a wonderful position to be in because of who he is the sovereign creator of the universe. But through our adoption, he becomes our Abba. That's, that's what makes it personal. That's like, that's like going up to, to Brother Ron and saying, Daddy. Or going up to your father and addressing him as Daddy. See how personal that is? The good thing, though, is Every born-again believer have that same privilege. You see? And that is possible through adoption. You can go to your heavenly father and you can embrace him and you can say, Abba. It's the same as saying, Daddy. Why? Because of our adoption. So when you think about the close bond or the close relationship you have with your earthly father, how you went fishing together, or you went, in my case, went to the farm with your father together, or you just hang out and you just, just do things together. You just, you know, you, you feed him if he needs help, or you push him in a wheelchair. Like I say these things because this just happened for me before my father passed away. I would push him in a wheelchair, or I would shave him, or I would feed him, or I would put him in the tub and bathe him. So, we had that kind of relationship. And I had the wonderful privilege of leading him to place faith in Christ. And so I had that bond. But if you have that kind of bond with your earthly father, where you can hug him and you can spend time with him, you could take him for ice cream like I used to do. But you know what I'm talking about. But see, in Christ, as a born-again believer, you can say, Abba. You have that right. You have that privilege. You have that freedom. You're in a privileged position to call the creator of the universe, Abba. And I hope at some point that would sink in and you realize that God is your heavenly father. He's your Abba. But that comes through spending time. That comes through uh, constant communication. I, I just... I just would, would pray that you would come to appreciate and come to experience what that intimate relationship is with, with, with that truth, that truth sink in, where you can say, Abba, he's your daddy, he's your heavenly father. That, that makes all the difference in the world when you're having a quiet time, when you when you by, by yourself and you can just spend time, this you and your heavenly father, you and Abba, you and that makes all the difference in the world. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for what God has done for me. Mm. The Holy Spirit confirms this in verse 16 and verse 17 by stating, if we are God's children, we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Jesus, if we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. My friends, this word if, 
in verse 17, does not question whether or not we are God's children, because we know we are his children through adoption. So another way of stating it would be, since we are God's children, we are heirs. What, it, what does it mean to be an heir? What does it mean to be an heir? If someone says you're an heir to someone's fortune, that means you become the owner, right? You take possession of the inheritance that was left for you. You become heir to what was left. We are heirs of God. But notice, one translation says co-heirs. Another translation says joint heirs with Jesus. My friends, what was accomplished on the cross and when we place faith in Christ, that was not just opening up the way of salvation to us. Yes, that most important of all. But in addition to opening the door of salvation freely to us, we became heirs of God and co-heirs or joint heirs with Jesus. If indeed we share in his suffering, which tells us that living this Christian life is not a bed of roses, but God gives us the grace and the strength to live a godly life and live for him anyway. So even though it's not a bed of roses, we know even though there's challenges, they are what? Temporary. They're temporal. But we are joint heirs with Jesus. Heirs of God. Listen now as I read uh, uh, verse 18 down to verse 28. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation is eagerly awaiting for God to reveal his children, because the creation was subjected to frustration, though not by its own choice. The one who subjected it did it so in hope that the creation itself would also be set free from slavery to decay in order to share the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that all creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. However, not only creation groans, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved with this hope in mind. Now hope that is seen is not really hope. For who hopes for what, he can, for what can be seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with, with groans too deep for words. And the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, for the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God's will. And we know that he wakes all things together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. In these 11 verses, Paul talks about the present suffering 
of all of creation as it awaits its redemption from slavery to decay and a glorious freedom to come. He says in verse 23 that not only creation groans, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we anxiously await the redemption of our bodies. He encourages us, however, by saying in verse 26 and 27 that the Spirit comes to our aid to help us in our weakness, meaning that when we cannot pray or put into words what we feel, the Holy Spirit helps us by interceding on our behalf with groans that is too deep for words. My friends, he can do that because he knows the mind of the Spirit. And because of his love for us, he intercedes on our behalf according to his will. I have hallelujah there. Have you ever experienced either in anguish or was there ever a time when you, you really felt you needed to pray? You wanted to pray. But you just couldn't? You ever experienced that? When you feel pressured, you feel that you're going through a real dark time, a real difficult time, and you know you want to pray, you just, you just don't have the words, you just, you just don't know how to put what you feel into words. I've been there. My wife has had two miscarriages. One of them when we was in Rumkey, going through a real difficult time with the residents, some of the students. My wife had a miscarriage, had to be rushed off the island by plane. I couldn't leave. That tore me up because I couldn't leave. I couldn't, I couldn't leave the students by themselves. Like, I tried to walk down the beach under a cool pine tree to just sob before the Lord. and just So all I could do was just sob because... There's no words. You know, how, how do you put into words what you feel and your wife is rushing off to, to the doctor where you got to go from Rumkey to Long Island, Long Island, and Nassau, and then the PMH don't know what's going on. It was rough. It's a real difficult time. How do you put it into words? We are taught here that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans that is too deep for words. In other words, it's, it's a language that only he can speak. It's words that only he can find, only he can share. Why? Because he knows the mind of the Spirit. And so he intercedes on our behalf. He puts into his words, his language, on our behalf what we are unable to do for ourselves. Isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? Isn't it wonderful to have that kind of relationship, that assurance that, 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 you know, even in your moment of weakness, God loves us so much that he has made a way that even when we want to pray but can't pray, the Holy Spirit comes to our rescue and speak on our behalf and present our petitions before the throne of grace and, uh, so that what we need, what we want to say and can't say, he says for us. That's our advocate. God takes care of every issue, every aspect of our lives. He's made provisions for. And so I, 
all this is what, you know, so, so you mean to tell me even when I can't pray or don't know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit would take over and pray for me? When that, when that, when that really sink in, in that, that made all the difference. From what I used to be to where God wanted me, and not be, he wanted me to be, and I'm not all of what I should be. I thank God I'm not where I used to be, and I thank God I'm not what I used to be. And so I, 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 I just want to use this tonight to encourage you. There's no more condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And old things have passed away, and all things have become new. You just make sure that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And it may not be a bed of roses on your journey here, but remember, this journey is temporal. Matter of fact, we are only what? Pilgrims. We're passing through. This is a temporary journey for us. That's why we are in a tent. This body is only a tent. This is not a permanent structure. This is not a permanent building. This is a tent. And the difference between a tent and a stone structure is a tent. It's temporary. It's a temporary shelter. That's what you do when you go camping. You don't set up shop. And so... These earthly temple, these earth, this a this a temporary thing. But God loves us so much that He has made provision for us, even when we in our the midst of our struggles and our trials. No matter what you may be going through, when you can't pray or can't put into words what you want to say, the Holy Spirit takes over, and He intercedes on behalf of the saints. That's a hallelujah moment, guys. Verse 28, and this is a verse that we all have quoted time and time again. Verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. My friends, when he say all things, he means all things. No matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, no matter how challenging, we must accept that God works it all together for good, even though we don't understand his reasons. And as I was going through this, I have some co-workers who are faithful members of BFM. I was trying to think about the tragedy that happened with Pastor Miles and the rest of the passengers on the, the tragic plane crash. In the last several, in the last week, there were several funerals. When you think about both mother and father from the Monroe family, both leaders of BFM, and the whole Parks family, including the unborn child, the whole family. What, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, what possible good can you see or say comes from that? Those are some of the things that was going through my mind. But my friends, if you believe that God is sovereign, that God loves us unconditionally, 
and believe that God does all things well. And if you believe this verse, that he works all things together for good to those who love him, then we must accept that tragedy for what it is. Matter of fact, we may not even, we shouldn't even see it as a tragedy if we believe God works all things together for good. For them, that wasn't a tragedy of their believers because the same apostle Paul tells us to be absent from the body. Absolutely. So is that a tragedy? Of course not. So when you look at this verse, and then you line it up biblically, that God works all things together for good. And for Christians to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that's not a tragedy. You see? So you can't look at it, humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, you'll never understand it. You see? Humanly speaking, you will never understand this kind of what we call tragedy. But it's never tragedy for the Christian. Because for the Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see? And I am so thankful that having seen the, the interviews with the son and the daughter, so far, they have indicated that even though this has been the most difficult time in their lives, they have not lost hope. See, and that's the great, that's, that's the good news. They have not lost hope. The Apostle Paul now moves along to a topic that has been debated in many Christian circles for many years, and it's the topic of predestination. In verse 29 and 30, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And for those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. Looking at these two verses, the Apostle Paul uses past tense to describe what God has done, confirming that for those of us who have been chosen, it's a done deal. Whether one believes in predestination or not, it was God's sovereign choice and his alone. Many well-respected scholars differ on predestination. But whether you believe in predestination or not, Paul says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we ask in verse 31, what then can we say about all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul has carefully and confidently built his case throughout this chapter, speaking of God's unconditional love for and protection over his children. I want you to listen as I read the last few verses that really confirms how deep the love of God for us really is. Verse 32 to verse 39. Verse 32. The one who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. Surely, he will give us all things along with him, won't he? Who can bring an accusation against God's chosen people? It is God who justifies them. Who can condemn them? Christ Jesus who died and more importantly who was raised and is seated at the right hand of God is the one who is also interceding for us. Who can separate us from God's love? Can trouble, distress, persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, or a sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are thought of as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor anything above, nor anything below, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Friends, the Apostle Paul ends this beautiful chapter the way he started it. He expresses God's deep love for us through forgiveness by saying that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he confirms that in the last verse by saying that nothing in all of creation can separate us who are in Christ Jesus from his love. That's why I wanted to share this tonight. Again, like I said, that's the whole chapter in about 35 minutes. There is so much more that could be said, sermon after sermon, teaching after teaching on that same passage of Scripture. That's a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology in Romans chapter 8. Like I said, some respected scholars, commentators, have opposing views on some of what we looked at tonight. But my friends, for those of us who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. We have been adopted. And no one can separate us from his love. For that, I don't care who the scholar is, I don't care who the commentator is. I rest my case on those three verses. That's how Paul started it. That's how he sustained it. And that's how he ended it. And when you look at what he used to be prior to Acts chapter 9, and what he became post-Acts chapter 9, I with Paul. I with Paul. Because it was only Jesus who met him on the road and that's the one he surrendered his life to and died in defense of. So for that, him, with him, I rest my case. I thank God for Romans chapter 8 and for the truth that it teaches. And with my 
little bit of understanding the tra- transformation and the changes and the encouragement it has been to me. And I trust, my friends, that after the night you would feel the same way about Romans chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to share your word. We thank you for the truth contained in Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that for us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You were condemned on our behalf. You took the punishment for us. You loved us so much. You adopted us as your own. And you confirmed it by saying, no one can separate you from my love. And Lord, even though we don't deserve it, You love us in spite of, and do not treat us as our sins deserve. Tonight I want to say thank you for what you have done in my own life, where you have brought me from, where you have brought me to. Thank you for being a new creation in Christ, where old things have passed away and all things have become new. But I thank you on behalf of every person in this room who at some point in their lives had to make a decision to surrender the control of their lives to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.